And if you'd like to pick up your Bibles, uh, Lizzie's going to come and read for us from 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. And then Steve Jones will preach for us. I'm reading from 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. The Church Bible page is 1225. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Thank you, Lizzie. Thank you, Nathan. And good evening, everyone. <clears throat> well, our text this evening is uh, 1 John chapter 2 and we're going to look at verses 12 to 14 and the title of this message is true reassurance true reassurance before we look at God's word together let's pray father God in heaven we do thank you this evening for your word and father we ask as we look at your word that you would encourage us that you would comfort us and yes maybe challenge us as well this evening but Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be here amongst us and that he would do much in our hearts this evening. Father, may he be active. To the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen. His letter contained some things that are hard to understand. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. That's 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. That's what the Apostle Peter said about some of the scripture written by the Apostle Paul. Paul wrote, as Paul wrote, says Peter, some of the things that he wrote are difficult to understand. And I think we would all say amen to that. And then I think there's a degree of irony there, because when we read 1 Peter or 2 Peter, there's certainly some things there that are also difficult to understand. 
But the point of saying that this evening is that I think that some of the Apostle John's writings are difficult to understand also. And I think that includes parts of this letter that we're looking at together. These verses, 1 John 2, 12 to 14, contain some particular challenges for us this evening, certainly challenged me as I was preparing this message. We could ask these questions about these four verses. Number one, why does John include these verses at this point in the letter? Why include these verses here? Because you could argue that these verses in this part of the letter, they interrupt the flow of the letter. They'd be better elsewhere. Secondly, we could also ask, why does John use repetition in these verses? As we read, you will have noticed that John makes three statements in verses 12 and 13, and then he repeats these three statements in verses 13 and 14. Now, admittedly, he makes some changes the second time he repeats the, the, the three verses, when he repeats the three verses, but there is a large degree of repetition in what he writes. He seems to use this ABC, ABC pattern about these six statements. So he says, I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So a large amount of repetition there. A, B, C, A, B, C. We might put it that way. What's the point of this repetition? It seems rather strange. The third question we could ask why does John start three statements by saying three times, I am writing to you because, I am writing to you because, I am writing to you because, and then he says three times, I write to you because, I write to you because, I write to you because. You will have noticed that as we, or as Liz, read that section for us. In fact, we could translate those phrases more accurately. He says three times, I am writing to you because, I am writing to you because, I am writing to you because, and then more literally, three times he writes, I have written to you because, I have written to you because, I have written to you because. So he changes the verb tense of the second group of these statements from I am writing to you to I have written to you. So what's that all about? And then the fourth question, who are these three different groups of people that John seems to address in these verses? He talks to, he addresses children, fathers, young men, children, fathers, young men. What's John doing there? Are these literally different age groups in the church that he is writing to? Are, there, are they believers of different maturity levels in the church? Why does John write that way? So these questions and more we could add, add to the difficulty of these verses. 
and when you read some of the Bible commentators, they fail to reach a consensus about what this is all about as well. There are lots of ideas about why John writes in this structure in this way. And this evening, we're not going to go too deeply into what might be my tentative answers to some of these questions, but we are going to touch on them in a moment. But don't give up. Because I believe that overall, the message of these verses is a clear one, a straightforward one, one that is easy to understand, even if I've not set it up that way so far. Because here, John is attempting to assure, to reassure, to encourage his readers, the readers that he quite obviously loves and wants to encourage with these words. John wants to reassure the readers that they are God's true and beloved people in Christ. That's why true reassurance is a wonderful title for these verses that Nathan uh, gave to them, uh, an appropriate title for these verses. That's what John is trying to do for us this evening, to encourage us, to, to comfort us, to reassure us as God's people. You may remember a few weeks back when Nathan was setting the scene that the, the readers of this letter seemed to be unsettled. Some people who had professed to be Christians had left the church, and they'd left taking with them some rather wonky theology, we might say, some false teaching, some false teaching about Jesus and about Christian living and about sinlessness in the Christian life and about truth itself. It seems that the people who had left this church claimed that only they really knew the truth. It seems that they'd claimed that only they really knew God. It seems that they'd claimed that only they really knew who Jesus is who Jesus was, and we saw the claim a little while back that these people claimed that they'd achieved sinlessness. And these claims that these people had made and had left the church making these claims, it seems that that had unsettled, understandably unsettled, the true believers who had remained in this church. And so the Apostle John writes this letter to them. He writes with great pastoral concern. He writes with great love to comfort, to encourage, and reassure them, to give them confidence that they really are the true people of God. As we've already seen and as we'll see throughout the letter, John does, from time to time, give words of challenge to God's people and to us. John doesn't want people to claim or believe that they are true Christians when the evidence would suggest otherwise. But these verses, they're all about John bringing great comfort to God's true people. You see, John was sure that the people he was writing to were God's real people. They were true Christians. He knows them well enough. He's seen evidence in their lives to be confident that they were real Christians. And we'll see throughout these, this letter, these tests, if you like, these evidences that these people were true Christians. They, they confessed their sins. They, they lived not perfectly, but they sought to live righteously. They loved each other as God's people. They understood who the Lord Jesus Christ is and was. 
And John believes that these people are real Christians. He wants them to know that. He wants them to be assured in their faith. So to touch on very briefly on some of the questions that I posed earlier. Why does John use repetition in these verses? Why these six statements or three statements repeated afterwards? And these are all fairly tentative suggestions. They're not things that I'd be willing to, uh, to stake my life on, but maybe it will help us to think these things through. I think John uses this repetition to emphasize the truths that he tells the believers in these verses. He wants to comfort his readers, and it's John's way of underlining the truth of what he is about to tell them or is telling them. He's telling them some essential truths about what it means to be God's people. He wants to drive these truths home. And so that's one reason why he writes these verses in this format. ABC repeated ABC. That's why John uses repetition. Why might John have changed the use of a verb during his writing. I am writing to you. I am writing to you. I am writing to you. I have written to you. I have written to you. I have written to you. What's that all about? Well, again, I, I suggest that that's because John wants his readers to understand the confidence that he has that they are real Christians. It's as if I think John is saying, I was confident in the past that you were, really are, were God's people. I'm confident now that you're God's people and I'm confident in you that you will continue, will continue to be God's people. If you like, John is using this change in verb tense from, from past to present or present to past rather to express that he is confident that these people are true Christians, were true Christians and will be in God's strength real Christians into the future. And then very briefly, we have to deal with these three terms that John uses for the Christians that he's writing to. Children, fathers, young men, what, what's John trying to do there? Well, I believe that John uses these terms not to split his readers into three different groups, but rather quite the opposite. I think John is using these three terms to teach us that everything he writes applies to everybody in the whole church, to all true Christians. Not all the commentators would agree with me, but I think that's what John is doing. He's using these terms, children, fathers, young men this way, to encompass everybody, all the Christians, in everything that he writes, whether they're younger or older in the faith. When we'll look at these truths in a moment... The encouragement that John brings in these verses to us is true for every Christian. It's not that some of these blessings are for older Christians or more mature Christians and others are for younger Christians or less mature Christians. I think the things that John assures his readers about are true for all of us as God's people, whether we're more mature or less mature in the faith. So John is writing to these children and to these fathers, to these young men, not to separate people into groups. It's his way of including everybody in what he writes in these verses. If you'd like to argue with me afterwards about that, 
I'm more than happy to, to listen. So, to finish with this evening, what are these truths that John wants to remind his readers about? And, and none of them will be new to us this evening. John writes them to reassure us that we might think these things over, to be assured that they are true about us as God's people. Three precious realities that were true of John's readers and three precious realities that are also true of us who are Christians this evening. Number one, Christians have had their sins forgiven on account of Jesus' name. We see that in verse 12, 12a if you like. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Well, John has already pointed out, and I think John already pointed out with no H, that no one, no one of us is sinless. To say that we're sinless is to be a liar and to make God himself out to be a liar. And in one sense, all of us need day-by-day forgiveness for our day-by-day sins. As God's people, as we mature, this is something we should be doing regularly, frequently. We should be confessing our sins day by day. When we confess our sins to the Lord day by day, it restores, it renews our fellowship, our day by day fellowship, our communion, if you like, with God. Jesus teaches us to forgive us our trespasses. That's the Lord's Prayer, something that we are to pray on a frequent basis. We need, in that sense, to confess our sins daily. We need to confess our sins daily generally, but also specific sins, sins that we know have dishonored and displeased our God. And yet, in the ultimate sense, John wants his readers to know that they have been forgiven once and for all that the moment that they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, their sins had been forgiven. Their past sins, their present sins, their future sins, their sins had been forgiven on account of his name. That's on account of Jesus' name. Because of all that Jesus is, because of all that the Lord Jesus had done, their sins had been forgiven. Earlier on, John has reminded these these people that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for their sins. He's the propitiation for their sins. In other words, Jesus is the one who on the cross received the wrath of God for their sin when he was on, when he died on the cross. The Lord Jesus paid the price And because the Lord Jesus Christ received God's just wrath against our sin, his fair and right and holy wrath against our sin, because Jesus received it on the cross, it's been removed from us who are God's people. So John writes to tell these people, to remind them that they are forgiven people. And John wants them to be sure to know that they are forgiven people. This wasn't presumptuous on their part. Their forgiveness wasn't down to anything in them. It was all of the Lord. And so John wants them to be assured that they are 
forgiven people. Perhaps this evening some of us are struggling with our sinfulness. Perhaps there's a particular sin that we know that we are struggling with that that drags us down. Perhaps tonight you're feeling sinful generally. Well, God's God's word assures us this evening that our sin is dealt with completely and utterly if we are Christians. Our sins will never threaten our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Our sins will never separate us from him. He's never going to cast us away. Our sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Our past sins, our present sins, our future sins have all been forgiven on account of his name. In the new covenant, we have these wonderful words given to us in Hebrews and given to us in Jeremiah originally, that the Lord remembers your sins and your lawless acts no more. That's part of a wonderful definition of what it means to be a Christian. That the Lord remembers our sins and our lawless acts no more. In Micah chapter 7 in verse 19, there's two wonderful illustrations of this truth. There Micah tells us that our sins have been crushed underfoot. Or, or and, he says that our sins have been cast to the depths of the sea. They're beautiful illustrations of how the Lord has dealt with our sins. That they've been crushed underfoot, that they've been cast to the depths of the sea. And all this, not because we deserve forgiveness, not because we can earn it, but because in his grace, in his mercy, in his love, the Lord Jesus Christ died for us. Number two, the second truth we can take from these verses. Christians are in relationship with both God the Father and God the Son. Verse 14a, I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. Verse 13a, I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Verse 14b, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is is from the beginning. So John writes to his readers to remind them that they know God that they are in relationship with him. The people who had left the church, it seems that they were claiming that they were the ones who really knew God. And yet John wants his readers, his people here to know that it is they who really know God. They know God the Father. They know God the Son. That's him who is from the beginning. We're told twice in verses 13 and 14. I think John is talking about God the Son here. You'll remember back in 1 John 1 um, that uh, John had said that he had touched that which was from the beginning. So he who is from the beginning is the Lord Jesus Christ. They knew the Son of God. In fact, we know from elsewhere in 1 John and from 1 John John's gospel that to know the Son is to know the Father because the Son is the one who reveals the Father to us. 
So John writes here to assure his readers that they are true Christians, that they really know God. They truly have a relationship with him. To know God, isn't that an amazing thing? When you think about how small we are, how insignificant we are, when we think about how sinful we are, and yet God's word tells us that we know God as his people. That should thrill us. That should thrill us more than I think it does. And yet to know God is the reason for which we were saved. Now the forgiveness of our sins is a wonderful reality. I hope you rejoice in it and praise in it. And we praise God for that. But the, the forgiveness of our sins is only a means to an end. Because our sins were forgiven that we might know God. This morning with the children downstairs in junior church, we came across 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. So the reason for our salvation, the reason for the forgiveness of our sins, is that we might be brought to God, that we might come to know God, that we might enjoy God and revel in Him and worship Him and, and have fellowship with Him, to know Him now and forever. John Piper writes, I think I had a John Piper quote last time, apologies, I'll try and do without next time. John Piper, I'll try, no promises. John Piper writes, the greatest good of the good news is the enjoyment of fellowship with God himself. This is made explicit in 1 Peter 3.18, in the phrase that he might bring us to God. That's why Jesus died. All the other gifts of the gospel exist to make this one possible. We are forgiven so that our guilt does not keep us away from God. We are justified so that our condemnation does not keep us away from God. God is propitiated so that his wrath doesn't stand between us and God as our Father. We are given eternal life now with new bodies in the resurrection so that we have the, cap the capacities for being with God forever and enjoying God to the fullest. So, as Christians, we know God and that should thrill our hearts that should lead us to want to fellowship with him and then to enjoy him more than anything else. And I know that's not always true of me. I'm sure that's not always true of you. But that's in God's grace what we're aiming for. That we might more and more enjoy knowing God, fellowshipping with him, enjoying him, reveling, reveling in him and so on. And if we're not yet Christians... We should want to know God. And yet the Bible tells us that we can know God. We can know God through believing in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, by asking for forgiveness in his name and through trusting everything that he is, everything that he achieved in his life, death and resurrection so that we might know God. We might have a relationship with God. And then finally, number three. Christians have victory over Satan. 
See, John wrote to assure his readers that in Christ, they had victory over Satan. Verse 13, I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. In verse 14, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. In verse 18, John writes about little antichrists, we might say, little representatives of the evil one, false Christians who've deserted the church and who have damaged the church. And their presence amongst God's people has been discouraging and unsettling. They've been doing the work of Satan. But John writes because he wants to reassure his readers that in the Lord Jesus Christ, that in Christ, they had ultimate victory over Satan. As God's people today, we, we need to be aware that Satan is still on the prowl today. That Satan seeks to spoil Christians, he seeks to spoil churches, he seeks to tempt, he seeks to make trouble, and we know that, humanly speaking, often he is successful in doing so. And as God's people, we must be alert, we must be prayerful, we must be watchful, we must take a stand against the devil's schemes. We must pray often, deliver us from the evil one, as Jesus taught his disciples. But tonight, John wants to assure us, to assure his readers, that, that ultimately we are victorious in Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ gained victory over Satan when he died on the cross. As God's people, we've tra been transferred from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of light. No one, none, including the devil, can snatch us from Christ's hand. Satan's ultimate defeat is inevitable. In fact, it's already been guaranteed. It's already been achieved. Everything that Satan is capable of doing now is only that which our God permits as part of his good, sovereign plans for his people. And so John writes to his readers, and he says that you are on the winning side. And as God's people today, we are on the winning side. Because in Christ, we are victorious over Satan. We have overcome the evil one. Sometimes we may look at circumstances and be tempted to despair. At times we look at the world and we're tempted to despair. Sometimes we look at our own circumstances. We look at our own sins and we're tempted to despair. And yet we're to walk by faith and not by sight. Because God's word promises that we, we are victorious in Christ and that we will be victorious in Christ as God's true people. It's through believing the promises of God's word that we are strong and that we have victory over the evil one. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you. It's because God's word lives in us, God's truth lives in us, that we have strength and that we achieve victory over the world through faith. So then to wrap it up, John wrote to bring assurance to God's people 
who had been unsettled, unsettled by others, unsettled by circumstances. And we admit tonight that we too can become unsettled, even as God's people. But the Lord says to us this evening, he says through this letter, be reassured, be comforted, be encouraged. Our Father says to us tonight that in my Son, you have the forgiveness of sins, you have victory over the evil one, and you have an eternal relationship with me. So be encouraged. Let's just pray before I hand back over to Nathan. Father God in heaven, we do thank you for your amazing grace to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you because we deserve none of this. We deserve nothing that John has just outlined for us. Father, we recognize something of our sinfulness and our frailty, our insignificance before you. Father, in and of ourselves, we would be rebels. And yet, Father, we thank you for the grace poured out upon us. We thank you for the blessings that you've bestowed on us. And we know it's all of you, all of Christ, all of your grace, all of your forgiveness and generosity. Father, we thank you this evening for the victory that is ours over Satan. Father, we thank you for the forgiveness of our sins achieved on our behalf on the cross. Father, as we approach the time of you and we especially think of these things, we pray that we might be encouraged and challenged over the next couple of weeks to think more about all that it means to be a forgiven people and all that it took to be a forgiven people. And Father, we thank you that all of that was done by Christ, that we might know you and know him. Father, forgive us for the times when we waste our attention and our energies on things which are of utter insignificance compared to the things that we've read this evening. Father, help us to enjoy you more. Help us to revel in you more. And as we've sung earlier on, we, we do thank you that we know you, but we want to know you more. So please draw us ever closer to yourself that we might glorify you glorify your son and we ask it in Jesus name. Amen. <laughs>